Our scripture reading uh, this morning is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Pastor Marlon knows this is one of my favorite passages. Um, We've had several retreats where uh, Marlon asked me if I'd give a little study, and one time I did it two years in a row. The same passage because uh, just it's just such a great passage to do uh, with a group of people. Uh, so it is my privilege to be able to read it uh, this morning. God's word. Colossians chapter three, verses nine through 17. <clears throat> do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, or dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. And Father, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would instruct us today from your word, that you would help us to grasp the message that you want us to receive, and then that your Holy Spirit would do his work to show each of us how we should go and practice what you have said to us today. Thank you for a wonderful time of worship, chance to sing these songs together to you and about you. And Lord, thank you for what you've done. This group of people would not be here together today if it weren't for what you've done. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, give you a little exercise here. I'm going to uh, bring up some things and ask you to stand if it's true of you. All right, so here we go. If you have lived 
in Minnesota, all your life stand. Okay? The Minnesotans may sit down. If you have lived elsewhere during the course of your life besides Minnesota, outside of the state, stand. Thank you for joining us in Minnesota. You may sit down. I'm really interested in this one. If you are primarily of Scandinavian descent, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, Finnish, stand. Primarily of Scandinavian descent. You may be seated. If you are primarily of another ethnic descent, stand. Don't be bashful. Okay, have a seat. If you became a Christian, received Jesus as Lord and Savior as a child or a teenager, stand. All right, you may be seated. If you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, became a Christian as an adult, stand. Oh, praise the Lord. Look what he's done. All right, you may be seated. One more. If you would consider yourself personality-wise an extrovert, outgoing, please stand. All right, you can sit down. If personality-wise you see yourself as an introvert, not outgoing, please stand. Well, this surprises me for some of you, but I believe you. All right, you can sit down. Now, why did we do that? Well, that took just uh, four subjects in less than five minutes to prove that we are a group of people that is very different. Just in those four areas, we who are gathered here are different from one another. And we could have kept going and found more and more ways in which we are quite different. Today we're going to talk about, and I hope you enjoy this, because I think you're going to learn something, I learned something. We're going to talk about the disciples, those that Jesus chose to be with him and to train, and that he would eventually send out to do his work. That group is listed in four different places in Scripture. Uh, The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then in the first chapter of Acts. Let's turn to the Luke text, Luke chapter 6, and be reminded of who these people were. 
Luke chapter 6. Luke's list is in verses 12 through 16. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. In other words, many who had been following him, called them to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. And here's the list of the 12. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Those are the men that Jesus chose to be with him. He would train them. Eventually, after he left, they would be sent out to continue his work. They were the apostles. And what a crew they were, as you will find out this morning. They were the kind of crew that one would find themselves asking How could that group ever be unified? How could they ever get along? They were so different. But Jesus unified them. Jesus brought them together and made them one. And he probably was the only one who could do that. So let's talk about them. I'm going to take you through the entire list from Luke and just remind you of some of the things we know about them. There's a lot we don't know about these guys, but that we know about them from Scripture. And when I do that, what I want you especially, even if I don't bring it up, I want you to notice how different these guys were from each other. And imagine what each of them brought to that group. So we start with the one that we are probably most familiar with, Simon Peter. Jesus gave him the name Peter. He was Simon when he was called. Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock. As we know, Peter was a fisherman. He was married. Personality-wise, he had to be the most upfront of all the men in that group. We have proof of that as we go through the Gospels. He was a very upfront person. I think he would have stood with the extroverts, probably, uh, this morning. Then we have Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother. 
which means that uh, Andrew was also a fisherman. He and his brother Peter uh, were fishermen together. Andrew, in fact, went and found Peter and introduced him to Jesus. Andrew also, we find, had been following John the baptizer for a while. So he had already been a disciple of someone for a period, John the baptizer. But then John, the baptizer, introduced Andrew to Jesus, and Andrew started following Jesus, went and got his brother Peter, and together they followed Jesus. Peter and Andrew were from the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where they lived and where they carried on their little fishing business. Then we have James and John. James and John were brothers. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee. They were also from the northern side of Sea of Galilee. It seems like they knew Peter and Andrew to some extent. Maybe had fished together at times. But one of the differences we find between James and John and Peter and Andrew would be that James and John, Zebedee, their father, seemed to have a more prominent fishing business because we're told that they had hired workers. And to have hired workers, that tells us that probably uh, Zebedee's fishing business was a little more uh, upscale than Peter and Andrew's. Another thing that's interesting is that later in, in the scriptures, and I'll, I'll give you the text, it would be in uh, John 18, 15 and 16, we find that after Jesus was arrested and brought to trial, it was John who spoke to the somebody to get Peter into the courtyard around that fire. And it says he was able to do that because he was known to the high priest, which tells us that James and John and Zebedee, their father, had some kind of relationship with people back in Jerusalem, including the high priest, that John could get Peter into the courtyard that night. Maybe because they were more prominent businessmen, fishermen up there in Galilee. That was James and John. Jesus gave them a name also, Sons of Thunder. These two brothers were passionate. And there was a time when because a certain village had not received Jesus very well, they asked Jesus to just send down lightning and thunder and destroy those people. You know, they were really upset. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They were thunderbolts, those brothers. Then we have Philip. An interesting thing about Philip is that Philip is the only Greek name among this group, a Greek name. And yet he's a Jewish man. Uh, the Bible says he was from Bethsaida, which again is on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. So why would that Jewish man, Philip, have a Greek name? 
the only explanation is probably that he was what you would call a Hellenistic Jew. That even though he was living in Israel at this time, when he's called by Jesus to follow him, it's very possible that he was born and grew up outside of Israel. And Jewish people that were born and, and grew up and raised outside of Israel were called Hellenistic because they came from the Greek culture. And it's very possible then that Philip spoke Greek since he was probably born and raised outside of Israel, which helps us when we come to John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, when Jesus and his group are in Jerusalem, it tells us that there were some Greeks there and they went to Philip to ask if they could see Jesus. Why would they go to Philip, these Greeks, if they wanted to see Jesus? Maybe he's the one that spoke Greek. Philip brought Bartholomew or Nathaniel to Jesus, the next disciple. He's called Bartholomew in all of the gospel lists. But when he's called, when Philip went to find him, he was called Nathaniel. Went by both names. But Philip introduced him to Jesus. One of the things we find out about Nathaniel or Bartholomew is that he was from Cana. And if you're familiar with a map or the Gospels, you know that Cana was this little town in Galilee where that wedding was, where Jesus performed his first miracle. Uh, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, was from Cana. And he's the guy who, when Philip found him and said they'd located the Messiah, the Messiah was there, uh, he, he was from Nazareth, Nathaniel was the one that said what? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, we look at that a lot and we think it's just a statement of fact because Nazareth was a small, insignificant place. But if you look at a map, you will find that the city of Cana and the city of Nazareth were very close to each other. Small towns. You ever lived in a small town near another small town and experienced the rivalry at basketball games, football games, or just at the restaurant? Small towns have a way of having rivalries. It's possible that Bartholomew, Nathaniel, was a guy who had some prejudice, that maybe his statement was more out of rivalry and prejudice when Philip tells him that the Messiah came from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe Nathaniel Bartholomew is a guy who brought that kind of thinking into this group. It's possible. Next we have Matthew. When Jesus called Matthew, he was referred to as Levi. But in all four lists of the disciples, he is Matthew. Interesting. Matthew was a tax collector. 
Matthew was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans. He collected taxes for the Roman government. What do you think the other 11 Jewish guys thought when Jesus brought Matthew on board? You see, the Jews hated the tax collectors. They were traitors. They were working for the enemy. Plus, they were cheaters. And they became wealthy on the backs of their own people. And so Matthew would have been a tax collector. He would have been an outcast-type person among other Jewish people. I read that tax collectors were even kept out of the temple and synagogues. They were not allowed in those two places because they were unclean as Jewish people working for the Roman government. And Jesus chooses a tax collector to be with him, which means he would be with the other 11. Flashing warning signs. Tension in this group. Matthew was one of them, the tax collector. Then we have Thomas. He was one of these guys. Now, when you hear the name Thomas, what comes to your mind? Doubt. Yeah, doubting Thomas. Unfortunately, the poor guy has gotten that that tag. And uh, he's called that because, you know, in John 20, after the resurrection, uh, for some reason, Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared alive to the disciples. And when they excitedly go and tell Thomas, he, he's not going to believe it. It can't be true. He doubted it. Remember what he said? Until I see. You know? Until I see the scars in his hands and feet. I won't believe. Thomas was a pessimist. Thomas was a skeptic. He was a doubter. And it wasn't just that time that this personality trait came out. Uh, there was another time when Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem for a feast. And the disciples were trying to convince him not to go because they were afraid it wouldn't be safe. But finally, Jesus just says, I'm going. And Thomas makes the statement, well, then we go too and we'll die with you. That was Thomas, the pessimist. Okay, we'll go with you, and we'll die with you. Thomas is also the guy in the upper room, as recorded in the first part of John 14, when Jesus says he's going away and he's going to prepare a place for them and he's going to come back and take them to that place, and he says, you know the place I'm going to and the way to get there. And somebody speaks up, and it's Thomas. He says, Lord, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. Pessimistic. Cup half empty person. That was Thomas. And if there have ever been, and I don't want to step on any toes here, but if, if there have ever been people like Thomas in your life, 
you know, doubt everything, skeptic about everything, pessimistic. They see the bad side about everything. Nothing is good. They're hard to get along with, aren't they? At least hard to be around. And here, one of these guys that's going to be traveling with the group is a pessimistic, doubting skeptic. Warning signs of what it's going to be like with Thomas in the group. Then we have James, another James. And so he's called James the son of Alphaeus probably to distinguish him from James the brother of John. He's also called James the less. (laughs) Oh, you could have fun with that. James the less. The word that's translated less is the Greek word micros. We get the word micro. It literally means little or young, less. So either this James was a little guy or he was really young. Maybe the group called him Little James. I don't know. Robin Hood had his little John. Jesus had his little James. But he was called James the Less. Now here's an interesting thing about him that I learned that I had not seen. Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. Just tucked away here, but we learned something about this James. This is after the death of Christ. Remember there were women who uh, were around the crucifixion and uh, prepared the body of Christ. Remember that? Notice this in Mark 15:40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, James the less. She was also the mother of Joseph and then another woman, Salome, who we'll talk about later. Verse 41, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. In a few minutes, we're going to learn that there were a few women that actually traveled with Jesus and the disciples and probably took care of some of the practical uh, needs. Maybe they cooked. I don't know. But it says here that there were these few women who traveled with Jesus and his group. But one of them was Mary, the mother of James the Less. Does that paint a picture for you? James is one of the twelve with Jesus, and his mother is along. Could that be a warning sign? Traveling with Jesus, being trained, this very special thing, but mom is going along. I remember going to basketball games in Babbitt, and our kids didn't even want to sit on the same side of the bleachers as Janine. And here, James the Less has his mom traveling with them. Interesting. Then we have Simon, another Simon. 
And to distinguish him from Simon Peter, he's called Simon the Zealot. <clears throat> Simon the Zealot. And if you know what a zealot is, you see warning signs already in this group. You see, there were four groups within Judaism, the Jewish religion. There were the Pharisees who were the conservatives within Judaism. You had the Sadducees who were the liberals within the Jewish religion. You had the Essenes who were the separatists. They just went off and didn't want to be around people and studied the word and prayed. And then you had the Zealots. The Zealots were the political activists. The word zeal, Zealots, okay? And uh, they were the radical ones. They were the ones that felt God had called them to overthrow the Romans. And so they were trying to do that. They were violent. They felt that was the way to do it. They were very militant. But they felt God had called them to overthrow the Roman government, the zealots. And this Simon was one of them. In a sense, they were terrorists. In fact, within the zealots, there were a group called the Sicarii, which means dagger men. They were the assassins which within the zealot group. And there were a lot of assassinations of Roman soldiers, especially at that time at the hands of the zealots. Now, whether this Simon was one of those um, dagger men, an assassin, or not, we know he was a zealot. And that gives us an idea of what he was thinking, his views. And yet Jesus calls him. Now, I want you to think about that. Jesus calls a zealot to follow him and be with his group, be a part of it. In that group is a guy named Matthew. worked as a tax collector for the Romans. And so Jesus puts a tax collector working for the Romans together in a group with a zealot. can see problems, can't you? Then we have Judas. There were actually two named Judas. This one is Judas, the son of James. He was also in two of the lists called Thaddeus. Judas or Thaddeus. And probably being called the son of James and Thaddeus helped him be distinguished from Judas Iscariot. Because who later would want to be sharing the same name with Judas Iscariot? So he was referred to as Judas, the son of James, or Thaddeus. And we don't know a whole lot about him. And then, of course, we have the other Judas, Judas Iscariot. Uh, the word Iscariot means man of Kerioth. Um, Ish means man. Kerioth was a small town in southern Judea. which means Judas was a man from Kerioth, a town in southern Judah, 
Where were the other 11 from? As far as we know, they were all from Galilee, up north. Judas Iscariot was from southern Judea. Interesting. How did he become one of the 12? We don't know. It'd be interesting to learn his backstory. Coming from southern Judea, south of Jerusalem, to end up traveling in Galilee with 11 guys from Galilee. We know that Judas Iscariot became the betrayer. We know that he was a deceiver, pretending that whole three-year period. We know that he was a thief. Remember the statement? He was the treasurer of the group, and he used to take money out uh, of it. The text tells us that. And that was Judas Iscariot. But he was part of the group, and he was from southern Judea, the only one outside of Galilee. I wonder if during that whole three-year period, Judas Iscariot felt like the outsider. You ever been part of a group where everybody else has all this stuff in common and you have nothing in common? You feel like the outsider? I wonder if Judas Iscariot felt that way, being the only one in the group from Judea. So those are the 12. Now, we're not going to take the time, but we could just go through all these differences that we see in these, these 12 men. Occupation, where they came from, uh, personalities, political views, uh, background. Uh, I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time just identifying all these potential differences and potential conflicts and things about these guys that would cause tension in this group. But we won't do that. Because I trust we can see that Jesus has put together quite a crew. But then we have to add one more dynamic. Because according to that Mark 15 passage that I read for you, there were a few women traveling with them, which would have been interesting in the Jewish culture. At least three, Mary Magdalene. And if you recall her, Magdalene just points to where she came from. But she was a, a lady that Jesus cast demons out of. And now these guys have a woman traveling with them that was a demonic, that had demons at one time. And then there was Mary, the mother of James the Less. And then there was Salome, named there in Mark 15. And this is interesting because in another place, we find out that when Salome is named, she is named as the wife of Zebedee. Who was Zebedee? The father of John and James. Guess what? There was another mom. Which helps us understand the time 
when John and James' mom did what? Went to Jesus, remember it? And asked if her two sons could have the seats at the right and left of Jesus in the kingdom. It was John and James' mom who came to him. If she was one of the few ladies traveling with them, you can see how she was able then to have that conversation with Jesus. So there were some women traveling with them. That would be a whole dynamic. And two of them were moms of the guys, and one used to be possessed by demons. What a crew! And Jesus knowingly chose this crew to be with him, to train, and to send out to continue his ministry after he left. What did that group have in common? What could possibly unify them with all those differences? They had Jesus. They had Jesus. He chose them. And if you recall in John 6, they chose him. Because at the end of John 6, write it down, you want to look at it. At the end of John 6, up till then there have been all these people following Jesus And Jesus starts getting serious about commitment. And everybody walks away except those 12 guys. And Jesus invites them to go. And Peter, of course, speaks up for them. He's the upfront guy. He says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus chose these guys as different as they were, as little that they had in common with each other. And then they stuck with him at a turning point and chose to stay with him. We come to Acts 1 and 2, and we find Jesus giving these guys, minus Judas Iscariot, a mission. And it's to be his witnesses throughout the world, right? And in Acts 2, they received the Holy Spirit, who then, as we read in the rest of the book of Acts, they go out as a unit. I mean, they are unified in their message and in their mission. They're unified in their commitment to the risen Christ. They change the world. And look what it says about these guys in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at this text next week. But just something it says. Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This crew that had so little in common, this crew that was so different, this crew that could have blown up, became part of the foundation of the church, of the family of God, the household of God. Isn't that amazing? 
What could cause that to happen? How could they have ended up so unified? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He is the great unifier. As we saw at the beginning, we are quite a crew. And those are some pretty tame differences, okay? If we start checking it out, we could find some really interesting differences between all of us, right? We don't all agree on things. We've proven it in the last two years, like every other church has. We're quite a crew. What unites us? Jesus, the unifier. I'd like to wrap it up going to Galatians and then over to Colossians. Galatians, right before Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 26. Galatians 3, 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. All those things that could divide us, all those things that could put up barriers, all those things that make us different, no longer matter because we are one in Christ. We have been united. It's that positional unity we talked about two weeks ago. We have been united by our common salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been chosen by God for salvation in Christ. And that is what unifies us. It's Jesus and our salvation in him. Colossians chapter 3. Nathan got us started there. We're going to end there. In Colossians 3, just to point out some things that were read for us. Verse 11, Colossians 3. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what your differences are, what barriers there might be. He says, but Christ is all. All those differences, but Christ is all that matters because he is in all of us. He unifies us. He makes us one. And as you go on, verse 12, Paul reminds them that God chose them, all of them. That unifies us, chosen by God. Verse 15, he talks about the peace of Christ ruling. 16, he talks about the word of Christ dwelling in us. Verse 17, he talks about doing everything and saying everything in the name 
of Christ. What unifies us? It's Jesus. Christ is all. It's the common salvation in Christ. He is the only one who could take a crew like this, so different in so many ways, probably nothing else would bring us all together. But Jesus, through our common salvation, has united us. And with that in mind, Paul says we need to start practicing that unity, the relational part of this unity. And so in verse 12, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That's how you practice this unity that's brought us together. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. That's how you practice this unity. Verse 14, and over all these things put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, what? Unity. The word is teleos. We learned about that word last week. You could read it complete unity, mature unity, blooming, visible unity. The only one who could unify us and has unified us is Jesus through our common salvation. And Christ is all. He's all that matters. And so many Christians in the last two years, whatever the subject has been, have gotten away from the truth that Christ is all. Christ is all that matters. We will never be unified by our differences. We are unified by Christ, and we are to be practicing that unity. That the world might what? Know that God sent Jesus and loves them. And they'll know it by seeing us who have been unified by the great unifier, Jesus, the only one who could do it, as the world sees us practicing and living out that unity. Because how good and pleasant it is when God's people are living together in unity. The kind of unity that only Jesus could make happen. He did it with his crew. (laughs) He's done it with us. Let's live it out. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for this, this view into the group that Jesus put together. He could have chosen a group that all agreed with each other, came from the same town, had all the same views and opinions, and yet he didn't. Maybe he wanted to prove that he could make a group like that one so that we could understand you can make us one. And you have through Jesus, through our common salvation. Now, Lord, help us. Help us to keep living and practicing that unity. In Christ's name, in the great unifier's name.
Jesus. Amen. Can you please stand?